Hello, Listen Steven listeners, and welcome to the content warning. The show in general is explicit, and this episode in particular contains discussion of addiction and graphic descriptions of bodily harm. We'd also like to apologize for the less than stellar sound quality on this episode. We had a couple different issues while we were recording. I'm pleased to say that they are ironed out and will be fixed on subsequent episodes, and in the meantime, we hope that you will bear with us. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy the show. everybody. Hi. And welcome to another episode of Listen Stephen, Stephen Listen, a Stephen King book review podcast. I'm Lily. And I'm Margo. Margo, I can say my name. And uh, (laughs) what are we talking about this week? Today we're talking about Night Shift, which is a short story collection, so not actually helpful. Uh, We're talking about four stories from Night Shift. Turning with Children of Corn. Mm-hmm. A classic. A classic. Mm-hmm. Um, this is his first collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? You know, I can. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was, you're right, you're right. Um, it was published in 1978. Some were previously published in, like, magazines and stuff, mm-hmm. and some were originally published in this collection. So when we talk about each story, I'll mention, like, this was originally published blank, or, like, this is original. Okay. You'll hear about it. Nice. Had you ever read this before? I definitely have read it before. I don't remember reading it before, though. Like, I know I had to have read it. I'm, and I remember reading Churl in the Corn specifically, because that's a big one. Mm-hmm. And Drew Some Slot, and One for the Road. But I have no memory of any of the other stories, so... We'll see. Interesting. I had read I had read some of these kind of piecemeal. Um, I read I had read Children of the Corn before, and I had read Quitters Inc. before, but I had not read either of the Salem's Lot expanded universe stories. <laughs> Sometimes they come back in this book. I don't. I also yes. I feel like I've confused Graveyard Shift and Night Shift in my head because the cover like the titles are very similar. First of all. Yeah, and Graveyard Shift is a short story in this collection. In in this collection, yeah, which does not help. But I read that one. I read Sometimes They Come Back, and then I had, I had a high school teacher who had us read a set of Stephen King short stories, and so we read um, Strawberry Spring and The Boogeyman, and I've also read The Man Who Loved Flowers and some other ones. So I don't know if I read half of the ones that we're talking about today. It's interesting going from huge novel to set of short stories because, and it's also interesting, I feel like we use interesting so much on this podcast, but it's such a good word. It's interesting. It's like a, it's a neutral value judgment of a word. Exactly. I think that's that's what we look for. Yes, I think. Like, there is, there is stuff of note in the thing. But yeah, I've been editing our episodes and let me tell you, interesting gets used so many times well but if someone wanted to make their own bingo for listening to us to the show they it could, could be anytime it. yes anytime that we say something is interesting so many that, that'll be our free space 
You know what's interesting? The Lawnmower what's Man, which is a short story in this collection. The Lawnmower Man is interesting. We're Maybe not going to talk about it today, but if you guys haven't read it, give it a glance. It's really short. And it's It's bizarre? so funny. It's I, so weird. I mean, we could talk about it. I, I actually, I was curious because I know that it was made into, quote unquote, made into a film that has pretty much nothing in common with the story except the name. And Stephen King was like, take my name off of this because it's not the same at all. I don't want to be associated with this. Yeah. And I have never seen the film, but I read the story as I was reading these other ones. And I was like, this is fucking bonkers. It's, so the lawnmower man is about a guy who has a lawn and he lets it go for a while. Let's it get and then wild. he's like, oh, my wife and kids are out of town. I should call someone, deal with this lawn. Mm-hmm. You know, nice little surprise. So he calls a service and it's a guy who, uh, there's a, it's a lawnmower that's running by itself. And then a guy mm-hmm. who's completely naked, who's just following and behind the lawnmower, eating the grass like, clippings. But not just eating the grass, but like hoovering them up. Absolutely yeah. devouring them. And you, like, the he's like expanding as he goes. so gross. And he describes like the green juices dribbling down his chin. And it's yeah. so grotesque, but in such a bizarre way. It's, and then, like. It's so. I don't know what to do with it. I really don't. And then the guy's like, I'm gonna call the police. And the guy's like, You shouldn't have done that. And then he kills them. <laughs> That's the end. There's this weird discussion. It's kind of connected to Children of the Corn in that the antagonist is very obsessed with the health of a plant. Because in The Lawnmower Man, I forget exactly what he says, but he talks about, he like praises the grass or whatever. And yeah. then it turns out that the guy who's mowing his lawn has like cloven hooves and is, works for, is Pan and works for someone else or is I think he works for Pan. He's a satyr who like works for Pan. It's bonkers. It's, it really is. I've read that story before because someone I saw a post that was like, is this the worst Stephen King story? And I was like, let me make sure I remember this one. And then I reread it and I was like, absolutely not. This is not the worst one. This one is good. Actually yeah, it's it, nice. the Lawnmower Man is good. So Yes, it actually write is. that down. <laughs> it's it's very funny. So Unfortunately, we will not be getting depth into that, and, uh, depth into that, we will not be getting... Deep into that? Yeah. Going into it in depth? I think I combined them in my brain, and then, uh, got some depth. Ah, give it a read, you guys. If you have Night Shift, it's gonna take five minutes of your day. It's so funny. And sometimes, you know, you want to read some weird horror. Yeah, and something that's just, like, kind of funny and nice. So, a lot of the stories in this are not that. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's a good time. Which is interesting given the historical context. See, look at that. See that segue? Ooh. You proud of me, Mom? Mm-hmm. Uh, nice segue. But, like, I was looking up what was happening in the world in 1978, as I do for every episode. And, uh... Everything bad was happening. Richard Chase, who was the vampire of Sacramento, was arrested. So for those of us who don't listen to true crime podcasts, this is I not mean, intended to be a roast. I would have roasted you better than that. But 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not really ashamed. Yeah, he just, uh, he was just a serial killer who drank his victim's blood and Mm -hmm. ate the remains. It's fine. He was arrested in 1978, and then he, he died in prison, but I think he committed suicide. I don't think we got, like, a fun Mm. death. A fun death. Or, you know. He killed killed people. He deserved to die. It's fine. He drank their blood and ate their bodies. It was not great. Anyway, he was arrested in 1978. Uh, The Northeastern United States Blizzard of 1978 killed, like, 100 people. Which Stephen King would definitely have been, like, in. Right? It was, like, New York and then that area. New York was hit really hard by that because, of course, also New York in the 70s was, like, held together with, like, some string and police brutality, and that was all that was holding the city together. So when a bruise, like, a blizzard oh, came forget, in... Don't forget the corruption. Oh, you're right. Sorry, sorry. It's just, like, stacks of cash tied together with some string. That's it. So a lot of people died in that blizzard. Ted Bundy was recaptured. He escaped prison. He got recaptured. Mm-hmm. The whole thing. The first Unabomber attack was in 1978. Unabomber, wow. also not a good one. Bob Crane is bludgeoned to death. Not a lot of people these days know who Bob Crane is. Indeed, I do not know who Bob Crane is. Please. He was me. in Hogan's Heroes, uh, which is the show none of us here. have watched. I have he seen was Hogan's also, Heroes. I uh, spent a lot of quality time with the Bruce clan watching Hogan's Heroes, actually. Yeah, well, he got bludgeoned to death in 1978. That's very sad. He was also really, really into videotaping his sexual encounters. Oh... With and without the consent of the other party. That's... Some women knew about it. Some women were like, what are you talking about? I don't have a sex tape with Bob Crane. Oh. And they were like, actually, you do. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, so they don't know who bludgeoned him to death, but I think there are some options out there. You know, I'm not There's shocked, right? Um, yeah. Also, in 1978, Pope John Paul I became Pope, and then 33 mm. days later died, and Pope John Paul II became Pope. So... Mm. That was a pretty rough one for, like, every Catholic ever. It's really hard when a pope dies, and when one dies after 33 days, that's a bit much. And uh, Jonestown happened in November of 1978, which, as we all know, Mm -hmm. killed 918 people. Like, 1978 was a bad year. Yeah, do we want to, there's one bullet point that we have not. Oh, did I skip one? Yes, you skipped Roman Polanski. Ah, that bastard. That absolute uh, bastard. That absolute bastard pled guilty to raping a 13-year-old and then fled to France. Skipped bail, fled to France. Because he is not only a bastard, he is a coward. Imagine being so in 1978. So fuck 1978, basically. All of this is happening around you, right? And then you're like, oh, my favorite mm-hmm. budding horror author Stephen King released a collection of short stories. Let me read them. That's the mindset you'd be in. Everything in the world around you oh is horrible. <laughs> There's so much crime. 40 years later, that feels a little familiar. It's bad. Um, In terms of Stephen's life, he was doing okay. They were back in Maine, in Colorado. He was Mm. teaching creative writing at the University of Maine. All three kids are out being alive. Um, And of course, this year also, The Stand is published. So Mm -hmm. he was presumably working on that while this is published, although I think it would just be finishing touches. The stand was pretty late, I think it was like September of 1978, so there is a little bit of time in between publication. Oh, He's yeah, also... Frozen on my screen. Oh no. I'm sorry. 
But yeah, Stephen King is also three years away from his intervention. So he is mm. not having a great time. He's not in a fantastic place. Uh, and I think we see that a lot in some of these, these stories. Uh, yeah, I have some things to say when we get to Quitter's Inc. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ, talk about one-to-one metaphors. So you want to crack right. into it? Yeah, why not? Let's 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 roll on into Quitters Inc. and we can double back to Children of the Corn. So this, as the name implies, is about a man who wants to quit something, and specifically he wants to quit smoking. So he bumps into a friend in the airport, and he's like, Hey, friend, you look really, really good. What's up? I haven't seen you in a long time. And this dude, Dick is his, is his name, Richard, Dicky boy, um... <laughs> Yeah, Dick's like, wow, buddy, I wish I could uh, quit smoking. Quit and his friend's like, oh, let Go me slide you a business card. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And then he's like, oh, I guess I do want to do that. And so he goes to the place and he signs the contract before he finds out exactly what the terms are, which my dude. Great. So he goes there and he finds out that some of the really harsh methods that they use are like, hey, if you, we're going to tail you 24 hours a day and we'll always be watching you. And then after the first month, it'll be 18 hours, but you won't know which ones. And we will kidnap your wife and bring her to the electroshock room and make you watch as you, as, as we electrocute her. And then we'll go to your son's, your mentally disabled son's school and electrocute him or beat him up. And then we'll break his arms. And then if you really don't succeed and if you completely fail, then we will kill you rather than let you keep smoking. There's ten, you get ten infractions. Yes, ten infractions. And then, and, you know, it's okay. Yes, and so then he starts doing it, and he tells his wife and multiple people in his life, he says, like, I'm quitting smoking, and they're like, you're not going to be able to do that. And then he has one infraction, so his wife gets kidnapped and shocked, and then, of course, she doesn't know what the fuck is going on, and he's like, I'm sorry, it's happening because this is how they are making me quit smoking. And her reaction is, oh, thank God, I'm not mad. Yeah, she says, God bless these people. Yeah, and, uh, She's Gucci with it, she's fine. She's fine, she's totally fine. And then, so after he quits smoking, they notice that he has gained a bunch of weight, and so they have him step on the scale, and they're like, cool, now we're gonna make you lose weight, here's some extremely sketchy diet pills. And then he, I guess he succeeds, and then he runs into his friend who he first saw in the airport, and notices when he meets his wife that his wife is missing her little finger, which is one of the punishments, one of the infractions for weight. And there's also a moment that I took note of this time that I don't think I had before, where he runs in, he also, Dick runs into someone who he knew who also is still smoking and everything. And is like, mm-hmm. hey, here's this organization that helped me. It's called Quitters Inc. Yeah, he slides it on a business card. Yeah. So cool. the thing is that he runs into his friend in the airport. He's like, hey, you're not smoking. Also, you look great. Your career is going amazing. You have a lovely wife. Mm-hmm. What's your secret? And he's like, oh, I quit smoking. And then, like, later, the man whose name I don't remember who runs into Dick is like, you look great. Your career's going great. You quit smoking. Mm-hmm. Like, what's your secret? And it's like the mm-hmm. idea that if you just quit smoking, every other part of your life improves drastically. 
I hope that we that I don't spend every fucking episode talking about my experiences in early sobriety, but the parallels cannot be ignored. So Stephen is three years away from his intervention, and so I'm really interested in the framing of how Quitters Inc. cures quote unquote the smoking urge, and it's a similar thing to the rhetoric that Jack has when he's talking about going in and on the wagon or being sober in The Shining. In the organization of Quitters Inc., the framing of smoking is stop the behavior, and if you don't, there will be consequences. The consequences follow a clear list of steps and echo and escalate in severity. You will fail, and your life will be one of constant anxiety. You'll always wish to be safe, but you'll never be able to know if you are, and you will not heal from your behavior, but you will just be forced to confront it. And again, we talked about this, or I talked about this, a lot in the Shining episode, but this is basically, it's, it's, it's smoking and not drinking, but it's, here's an addictive behavior that you feel powerless to stop, and the only thing that we're going to change is force you to stop doing it and then explicitly harm people in your life when you fail at it, and there's sort of this framing of it like, you'll probably fail once, you might fail even more, and that's why we have ten steps, and the ending yeah. of the failure is death. And so it's really interesting, um, ah, there's that word, I am intrigued by the, the fact that he, here it's absolutely not okay to fail because failure means that everyone around you, like your loved ones, are hurt intentionally by, a, by an organization versus what it might look like in real life is much more shady and gray, like maybe you'll be in a financially tough situation, the impact is less immediately well, measurable. It is less immediately measurable, but it is very, like, one-to-one. Like, if you don't stop, the people around you will get hurt. That's oh, true. Yeah, absolutely. Smoking hurts everyone around you. Physically, mm-hmm. it harms them. And if yes. you don't stop, eventually, you will die. Well, mm-hmm. that's true, too. If you don't mm-hmm. stop smoking, you will die. That's, I mean, will die anyway. I mean, yes. It's very, everyone, like, everyone will die. one-to-one. I don't know. I've never, I smoked for a little while, and then mm-hmm. quit, and I didn't have that hard of a time with it, so I'm not going to say anything during the entirety of it, because I actually had a really easy time quitting smoking, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't have an addictive personality. If I decide to stop yeah, doing something, I just go. stop it, so yeah, I had an easy time. I do have an addictive personality. Yeah, um, so I am not an expert at all, but I have been, I did do, like, the patches. Mm-hmm. And they were perfectly fine for me. But I don't think they yeah. existed in 1978. I don't think so. When did Nicorette become a thing? I don't know. Um, I don't know people in the... I think the 70s was really when they started being like, we should probably stop this, huh? Yeah. This is probably bad. This is, a, this is not a great time. This is full of so much anxiety. Nicorette was introduced in 1978. Oh my god! What? Oh! Good to know. Um, but maybe he didn't know that. He didn't know that. Maybe he just chewed gum. Yeah. I know. The, me- like, the method works, but it is really harsh and sucks and um, involves putting family members at immediate risk of physical harm. So there is, yeah, that kind of one-to-one allegory. Um, but it's weird that in this the failure um he's not he's not allowed to fail yeah in this and there is of course like a 
your family knows that you're slowly killing them if they're smoking because they know you're smoking. His wife didn't know that he contracted this service and that, you know, hired goons could show up at any moment and kidnap her. I feel like he should have told her. Yeah, he probably should have. Probably should have told Before her. Maybe happened. then she would have been more careful about removing all the cigarettes, which also, fuck him. Because he's yeah. like, if I slip, it's Cindy's fault. I told her to get rid of all the cigarettes. And it's like, it's no, like, dude. So are you not a grown man with agency and, at this point, functioning limbs? I'm sorry. She's supposed to know that in your car, you keep, uh, like, half a pack of cigarettes? Why would she yeah. know that? In, like, the she... glove compartment, right? Yeah. She's your wife, not your minder. Yeah. But there's a, there's a lot of that that goes around <laughs> in these stories. Yeah. With Stephen's male protagonists. I mean, you're right. But he... I just hate that he went through. This isn't Oh, no, her I fault, hate it, too. Even a it's little bit. Fault. And she's so... I, if goons kidnapped me and I got an mm-hmm. electric shock, even if I was completely fine, I would be pretty salty that I wasn't told about it. Yeah, even if I was, like, proud of him for taking steps or whatever, I would say, great that you're doing this, shit that you didn't tell me. Yeah, I am their You couldn't have warned me that I was in danger of being kidnapped and tortured? At least then, when the guys come in to kidnap me, I'll just be like, oh, okay. My husband's Like, this sucks, but I know what's gonna happen, and I guess I'll just go and do it. She thinks that they're going to rob them. She thinks they're going to rape her. And then it's like, yes. no, this is because of your husband. Don't worry about it. And also, if that were the case, if they showed up, they wouldn't have to kidnap her. She could just go with them. Yeah. She'd be like, okay, boys, I guess we're doing this. Here we go. Even if she was resisting, she would have been less scared. Exactly. And I think that's worth a lot. Yes. Yes. Sick. So, what a coincidence. He is one. Is. Yes. Also, uh, hashtag woke Steve, question mark, because uh, they charge him 50 cents to electrocute his wife, and he's like, <laughs> yo, what the fuck? Like, ooh, is this a comment on the medical, <laughs> the U.S. healthcare system? And she's like, just pay it, and then she kisses yeah, just him. like, pay it. And it's so, <laughs> yeah, his wife is so weird to me in this. There's frequently in fiction, you run in, because it's constructed, you run into characters who do not behave like people. And she is not people in this story. She yeah. is very much a, a, a prop to, to have the, the man feels the consequences of his actions through things enacted on her, and then she is there to validate and support him, and she's not her own individual actor. And that, I was not a fan of that. No, I did not. I don't like it. Like it. Not I good. just, I wouldn't be cool with it. I would be pretty mad. Also, I want to point out that in this, once again, I read something about a character trying to get rid of an addiction and talking about the process, and my reply is, that's not how any of this works! No. Because it's not. Again, progress, not perfection, and in this story, he's so terrified to fail. The character is, but I think you can also perhaps see some of Stephen's anxieties, and I don't want to get too into authorial intent, because we all know the author is dead, we killed that fucker a long time ago, but it's there. It's there in the text. Yeah. 
It's right there. And it's so he's so concerned about it. There's a part where he's like, a horrible picture came, his life stretching before him, and not a cigarette to be found. And like, yeah, dude, that's what quitting smoking means. And he cannot mm-hmm. conceptualize of a world where he doesn't have a cigarette during like these very normal everyday behaviors. Obviously you need to quit. Like if you can't yeah. imagine watching TV with your wife without a cigarette or a drink or mm-hmm. anything, you shouldn't be doing that thing. Yeah. You cannot it's, conceptualize it's life without true. it unless it's oxygen or like food. Mm-hmm. You should just quit it. There's also one thing that I noticed that I thought was really in- interesting. One thing of note that I found this time was when Dick meets the person at the end who he gives the Quitters Inc. card to, he talks about how he doesn't really like that person. He talks about... Where is it? He calls him Um, a crony. Yes, he calls him a crony. Yeah, the crony from Larkin, by comparison, looks like something the cat dragged in. This This seems to be... Is this an act of revenge? It's so weird. He's trying, he's saying, here, how, here's this thing that how I got better. But it's not, here, I'm giving you this through a place of genuine concern. It's, you look gross, you look shitty, and I don't, and fucking fix yourself, is very much how, how I felt it was framed. I think there's some, there's some significance to that to the fact that he's not giving him this as a friend. He's not saying, oh, I should really, I can help you out. He's calling him a crony. He's saying he looks like shit. And then he's saying, here's this thing, which he's been through, and yes, it's benefited him, but it's also, like, he's lost weight by using, quote, highly illegal diet pills, end quote, and endangering the lives of and, and safety of his family members. So this is not a particularly healthy or safe process. And he's offering it to this man because this man kind of sucks. And it's a very, I'm doing better than you. Here, help yourself out, you garbage man. Um, yeah. And not a place of concern. And it's kind of that idea that Stephen has in The Shining when he talks about the learner, like everyone on oh, it yeah. is like holier than thou. I'm so much better than you because I'm on the wagon. Yeah. Haha, exactly. ha, look at those guys in the gutter. And that's and not how any of this works, Stephen. When we're coming to addiction, there's usually only like empathy and understanding towards others yeah. who are currently going through it. Yes, exactly. Because they and, went um, through it, they get it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Although, so I do think oh, the sorry, treatment yes. was very, very mild. He messed up once. Yes. And that's like true. on paper, what happened was not that bad. I'd call mm. them. But again, I don't have problems putting things, so mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't call them. That's it's $5,000. It's a lot of money in 1978. That is a lot of money. And that's also something um, worth noting, I think, is as someone who does have an addictive personality and and identifies very deeply with Dick in the story, um, or at least identifies in some ways, there is a feeling that failure is terrifying and inevitable. Mm -hmm. And so this does scare me because there's no room, like comparatively, those things are pretty mild. An electric shock that doesn't physically damage you and is just painful and in the first part lasts for 30 seconds that's inflicted on a loved one. Like that's shitty. But the context, part of it is what makes it scary is I didn't 
tell her about this and someone else is being hurt because of a thing that I did and it is my failure and I was weak and not able to resist it and there's this feeling of kind of inevitability of like you will fail again and that's the same thing with when he feels his life stretching out ahead of him he's like how am I ever going to get through this without smoking I personally would not call him because I would be so terrified of failure and there's also I think the feeling that I have sometimes especially with a bit of my comorbid assorted anxiety disorders Mm -hmm. with the feeling of well I failed once so failing is inevitable so I'm going to fail again so just like throw the whole program away um yeah that I think is a very scary space to sit in I don't know and cigarettes are very different than cigarettes are very different it's true alcohol or a lot of drug addiction as well Mm -hmm. where it's so you do need something very 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 hardcore in the time period Mm -hmm. now I think it's a lot easier in the 70s, mm-hmm. if you wanted to put smoking, you needed to really, really, really commit to it because it was mm-hmm. everywhere. It's constant. That's true. And it's everyone around him isn't helping because everyone around him is saying, oh, you'll never be able to do that. Exactly. And what everyone around him is smoking because yeah. that's what it was like. Everyone, mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think by the 70s, you weren't allowed to smoke in hospitals anymore, but you were still allowed to smoke pretty much everywhere else. It's still smoking sections on airplanes. Yeah, I don't even think you need to be in the smoking section at that point. Mm. In The Shining, they're just smoking on the airplane. Hold on, I'm going to look up, this is very important, I'm going to look up when Airplane came out, because that's when they talk about would you like a smoking or non-smoking. It came out in 1980, okay. But it was uh, a parody of movies released in the 70s. So, there you go. They prohibited smoking in domestic flights for two hours or less. Beginning in 1988. Still long haul planes you can smoke. 1988? Yeah. Which is uh, late. That's later than I thought. And they didn't have to ban smoking in hospitals until 91. Although a lot of hospitals banned it before that. I see. But that was when they were like, you you, you have to. You want to talk about showing the corn next? Ooh, let's. Let's. I am. The entire time I. Reread Children of the Corn. I was like spitting angry. I yeah, hate I was this guy too. so much. I think we should make a secondary bingo card, or just maybe have some have some extra ones that we can mix in occasionally for some some variety. And I think one of them should be Kennings. Mm-hmm. We know Stephen loves those, and one of them should be Jackass Husbands. Yeah, I have I have some thoughts. We'll discuss Children of the Corn. Originally published March 1977 in Penthouse. Oh, yes. Stephen gets a lot of things published in Penthouse. He did, yeah, and Playboy. And Playboy and Esquire? Yeah, a lot of Esquire, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you read Gentleman's for the articles. Magazines. Um, there's a very good and famous film adaptation made in 1984, or released in 1984, mm. and so of which... course, several not as good sequels that followed it. I would love to mm-hmm. rewatch Children of the Corn. It's been a long time. I've never seen it. The like movie is it. very different. It's I not that different. I mean, the children in the corn are still there, right? But uh, There's children, and they are of the corn. Yeah, they like corn. Corn is good. It's like that channeling bit about bread. The corn of corn is corn. <laughs> corn is bring good. us corn. 
That's literally no one, it, though. But the one who walks behind the rose will bring us corn. That's it, though. That's literally their whole religion is corn is good. Corn. <laughs> and everything that Which, brings us good corn is good. Corn, here's the thing. Corn is not that good. Corn, I think, is a mediocre starch product. You know what is good? I mean, Potatoes. They're in Nebraska. I think corn might be all they know. I don't think they've ever had, like, a really nice truffle or something. I don't think they've ever had, like, a really nice truffle or, like, one of those really good bagels that really satisfies you for a long time. Mm, I don't think they've ever experienced that. So corn is kind of, like, the top tier for them. I grew up around a lot of cornfields. It was different than it is in this town. Mm. Mostly there was not a religion about the corn. That's pretty different. So. (laughs) So there was a town? There was a town, and there was corn. Although we did have several problems with our corn throughout the years, so... Ooh, maybe you should have tried. Did you ever try uh... human sacrifice to the corn god? No, I don't think we did. Well... I should write them. Write a strongly worded letter. (laughs) Yo, guys. What's Uh, up? So, I can solve your corn problems. So, Bert and Vicky. Bert and Vicky. We hate Bert. Vicky Bert's deserves so much better. Why? Yeah, that should be our bingo square. Jerk-ass husbands and women who deserve better. They are having some marriage problems. Mm. And they are following my normal advice, which is they are moving. They're mm-hmm. leaving their situation and going to a new one to see if that helps. However, uh... It doesn't. It doesn't go great because Spoilers. they went through Nebraska. Things were actually, they mentioned this explicitly, things were going okay on the drive until they went Mm -hmm. off the highway and started driving through middle of nowhere in Nebraska. So, Nebraska kills marriages. I don't know enough about Nebraska to dispute this, so I'm just assuming that it's true. My best friend went to Nebraska for two years. Oh, that's right. um, I think she'd probably agree. She probably wouldn't. She liked Nebraska a lot. It was weird. She got a little brainwashed by Nebraska. It's fine. So, there, it's not safe. It's not a safe place. Emily, I'm sorry. Nebraska's bad, though. You have to admit it. Emily, please call me. Please. <laughs> anyway, they're driving to Nebraska. They're fighting constantly. They're both just being... He's being awful to Vicky. Vicky is rightfully being awful in return because he's just screaming at her and he deserves to be snapped at. Yes. In my opinion. And then... Uh, they run over a child, and they're like, oh, yes. that's not great. So they get out of the car, look him over, and Bert realizes in that the trunk? there's, yeah, they realize that there's blood coming from out, like, from the corn to the road, and that his throat has been cut. And they're like, oh, mm-hmm. this isn't manslaughter. <laughs> this is homicide. Yes. So they decide to wrap him up in a blanket, get in his trunk, and drive to the nearest town to report it. Presumably for a reason. Yeah, I'm unclear as to why they decided that putting the body in the trunk and driving it into the town was a good idea. They argue about it a lot. So they're not- It's not, like, a clear decision. Okay. But Bert thinks it's a great idea. He's making the decisions, I guess, even though my notes for this, when I highlighted things in my mm-hmm. Kindle, it's, he's an idiot, he's an idiot, she's right, she's right, he's an idiot, he's such an idiot, also I hate him, 
She's right. I'm glad he's dead. Those are my entire notes for this section. In order, by the Amazing. way. That was all Amazing. of them. Because he's such a fucking idiot. So they decide to drive to Gatlin. Vicky wants to go back and go to the bigger town that they've already driven through. Because mm-hmm. she's smarter than he is. And he says, yes. no, we're going to go to Gatlin. And it's been deserted since 1964. <laughs> they find out. It's really creepy. There's mm-hmm. corn everywhere. Yeah. And they find a church that looks like perfectly up to date and normal. Bert wants to pop in. Vicky's like, I would like to leave. He's like, okay, you wait in the car. And then he steals her keys so she can't drive yeah. away on him because he's terrible. Oh my god. Okay, that part, I, I was filled with some near incandescent rage. Where he's was so... It? He's There's a part right so before it where he screams at her and he says he took a distinct pleasure in the way she flinched. Uh, that's what we call a bright red flag, my friends. Yeah. Oh. And then he's like gleeful as he takes her purse and just dumps it all out on oh, the yeah. ground. Yeah, her purse was on the seat between them. He snatched it up. She screamed and grabbed for the shoulder strap. He pulled it out of her reach, not bothering to dig. He simply turned the bag upside down and let everything fall out. Her key ring glittered and tissues, cosmetics change old shopping lists. Amid, excuse me. She lunged for it, but he beat her again and put the keys in his own pocket. You didn't have to do that, she said, crying. Give them to me. No, he said, and gave her a hard, meaningless grin. No way. Please, Bert, I'm scared. She held her hand out, pleading now. You'd wait two minutes and decide that was long enough. I wouldn't, and then you'd drive off laughing and saying to yourself, that'll teach Bert to cross me when I want something. Hasn't that pretty much been your motto during our married life? That'll teach Bert to cross me? Uh, like, Bert, buddy, are you talking about Vicky or are you talking about yourself? Seems like you're probably talking about yourself. Yeah, well, that's there's a motto. thing that we call projecting, and... Like, that's what he would do, not necessarily That is, in fact, what do. he is doing right now. Yeah. So he leaves her in the car without the keys. He goes into the mm. church, and he pretty much immediately finds out the entire history of the town. Like, it's very, very yes. rapid. He, like, reads two mm-hmm. books, and it's like, oh, Vicky was right. Something's horrible here. All the children murdered all of the adults in town and mm-hmm. took biblical names for themselves. Also, yes. the kids die at 19, and they're just not having a great time. And then he starts hearing mm-hmm. the car horn honking weird yeah goes outside vicky is surrounded by creepy amish 12 year old they're not actually amish they just are dressed very poorly yes. sorry to the amish i don't think you'll ever hear this but i am sorry yes uh she's surrounded by children they slash the tires of the car like trash the car kidnap vicky mm-hmm. stab bert and bert murders the kid i don't know self-defense then so vicky's gone he runs away, escapes into the cornfield, decides mm-hmm. corn's great, he feels good, he loves the corn, he's having a great time, the corn takes him exactly where he needs to be, which is this clearing where Vicky has been murdered, and her murdered. eyes have been ripped out, and her... corn silk has been stuffed into her socket, her eye sockets. Yes, and her mouth, and yes. she has been uh, crucified on yeah. some poles. And next mm-hmm. to her are the corpses of the old police chief and, what is it, an old pastor? I think it's both, right? Because they talk about the uh, the blue man and the false minister, so it's the police chief and the, the, the old 
Yeah, priest. The one-time minister of the Grace Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. So that's horrifying. And then yeah. a giant red-eyed monster comes from the corn and kills Bert. And then the next day the kids are like, they're really upset because we didn't kill the guy for him. The man, or he who walks he behind the rose had to do it himself. Rose. So yes. actually now we all have to die at 18, not 19. And then everyone turns and looks at the 18-year-olds and they're like, yeah, I guess I have to die. And the and corn's then, like, do great. They, do they kill them or do they just walk out into the field? They just walk into the corn. They just, yes. uh, at nighttime, walk into the corn. One of them has a pregnant girlfriend who's weeping and talking about how she wishes she could kill the corn. Mm-hmm. But the deity will read her thoughts and it mm-hmm. won't go great. And yes. then it ends. The end. So, brief mention to my favorite podcast, Sunday School Dropouts, which is a podcast about the Bible. And I would like to thank them for their Amos episode. Uh, because it is my favorite episode, and I have listened to it many times, and therefore I know a lot about the significance of the name Amos, which is the name given to, or the name taken, perhaps taken by, the first person to, like, preach the word of, of the gospel of the corn. In the story, it's mentioned, um, he took the name Amos in 1964, fine Old Testament name, Amos, one of the minor prophets. So, in the Bible, there are 12 minor prophets, and they each have their own book of the Bible. And pretty much all of them are talking about um, the Babylonian exile, which is this period of time where the kingdom split into two, into Israel and Judah, and Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and led to the loss of the ten tribes that were living there, the ten lost tribes of Israel. Judah was taken over uh, by the Babylonians, but at one point, I forget, I can't remember who exactly, but they were, the kingdom was restored um, during the Babylonian exile. Amos is one of these minor prophets, and in his book, it was chronologically one of the earlier ones, but it's placed later in the Bible. So Amos is the, he's, he's framed in his book as a farmer, very much like a, a, a simple country farmer. And he is given all of this information by the Lord, the Lord speaks to him. And so he um, gives all of these prophecies. He comes to Israel and he says, listen, I'm just a farmer, but I can see that all of this stuff, Israel is becoming way too wicked and God is going to destroy the kingdom because of it. The, the prophets who come later talk about how God is going to destroy their enemies, but then also is going to destroy their own their kingdom and then build it back up again and restore it. Amos is pretty much just focused on all of y'all are sinning, shit is really wicked, God is going to fuck you up. Yeah, maybe he'll restore you eventually, but much more of the time is spent on the destruction and the sins and, and the wickedness. So it's it's kind of cool and Stephen shows that he is versed in Christianity to some degree because <laughs> Amos is not just one of the minor prophets. He's a minor prophet who is a farmer who talks about how doom is coming for all of these people and what they need to do and how they need to follow God and repent in order for them to be saved. Mm-hmm. 
so he's a very he's an excellent choice for a figure about a weird religion that borrows a lot from Christianity but is obsessed with corn. Yeah, that's that's my Amos notes. I don't know, I think it's also interesting like the use of the little prophet is Isaac, who is mm. one of the the leaders of the Israelites, one of the patriarchs of the Israelites. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But also his name is we will laugh, which I think is really creepy when you think about this little kid dressed in farm clothes. It's just prophesizing about how everyone needs to die a year earlier, actually. And I it's found a website that first. told me, and then of course I didn't save it, that told me the significance of 19, because I was curious. Um, yeah. Thank you for saving my search history, Mr. Google. Oh, um, I Google. Yay. Yay, the Nightmare Company. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so the meaning of numbers, the number 19. So the number 19, which is the combining of 10 and 9, is it really? Wow, I'm learning so much. Um, <laughs> so it reflect, it denotes God's perfect order in regard to his judgment in the Bible. So in terms of Israel, um, after, yeah, so after the death of Solomon, the, tri- the United Kingdom split into two, including Jeroboam, who was the first king of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, there were 19 kings before there, so they were conquered by the Assyrians after they had had 19 kings. So that mm-hmm. was the age of 19, the age of favor, and 19 was when, after yeah, after 19 kings, their kingdom was destroyed. So, and again, Amos is the one who tells them that, or one of the people who tells them that their kingdom is going to be destroyed. And I don't know if he's chronologically the earliest figure in the Bible to say that, or at least out of the Minor Prophets, but he is one of the earliest in terms of, and then I'm looking at 18, and I don't know if 18 is necessarily as significant or if it is just one less than 19, and so there. Um, yeah, 19 is the really, is the really so significant is it, one. Is it their 19th birthday they die? So I think it's... Or can they not get past 19? So 19 plantings and harvestings to 18 so i think it's like once you turn 19 you gotta yeet yourself off into the cornfield to die yeah i'm just thinking because they look around to everyone who's already 18 and they're like well i guess you have to be dead because you're already 18 well so that's yeah so that's so that's what i think is if they were they've been allowed to survive because they have not yet become 19 and now yeah. the age of favor is lowered to those who are 18. So I think it's not, it's not like completed years. It's not you live until you're 19 and then on your 20th birthday you have to go off and die. I think it's on your 19th birthday you, you do your thing. Yeah. Well, and also really technically you're only 19 for one day. And then you're 19 yeah. point whatever 365 is math who cares um because it does say like the date on the in the books is like is his 19th birthday so i think like they get one day of being well and also i think it's a good thing right to be favored i think yeah could be related Mm -hmm. to being sacrificed like i'm sure they look at it as like a great honor oh yeah well that's it says to be sacrificed to the court Yeah, yeah. age of favor. You be fruitful and multiply as the corn multiplies, that my favor may be shown you and be upon you. 
Yeah. So they're like, dope. I want to be sacrificed at 19. And then the 18 year olds are like, yeah, great. Let me Mm -hmm. walk into the corn. So Malachi, yeah, I'm looking this up. Malachi is also um, one of the minor prophets. Mm -hmm. And he is apparently, so as I was just Googling this hastily, because I was like, I remember there's a significance to Malachi. The book of Malachi is the last of 12 Old Testament books that bear the names of the minor prophets. Also, the author is unknown. Malachi is merely a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning my messenger. So there we yeah, go. and he's the one who killed the kid who was trying to escape the corn. Yes. That they refer to as now, like, cursed of God because he tried mm-hmm. to escape the corn. Like, he's the one who carried out that vengeance or... Yeah. I don't know. Pest control. I feel I like always... it's probably how they would view it. He is the hand that carries the knife that belongs to he who walks behind the Yes. You know, whatever. I never know what to make of stories that are deeply grounded in Christian or not even, well, it's the Old Testament, right? So it's not even, mm-hmm. it's not just Christian. Um, that are grounded in, like, the Bible is used in worship of a perverted god. Yeah, um, and I do think it's interesting that, like, the copy of the Bible they found in the church have a lot of stuff ripped out and kind of, like, mm-hmm. edited, but I mentioned this in our notes. I get how that corn religion happened. I, I okay, I talk about this a lot when it comes to the Simpsons, and Ned Flanders. You 100% understand why Ned Flanders is so religious, because several times during The Simpsons, he'll be like, God, please help me, I'm falling, and then God will move a mattress underneath him. He has Mm -hmm. 100% confirmed miracles happen, God is real, and God is looking out for him. So of course Ned Flanders is very religious. You say you talk about this a lot, but I've never heard you talk about it, but I also love... (laughs) that I'm hearing you talk about it now, because that's something that I have never thought of, because I'm not particularly well-versed in The Simpsons. I am very well-versed in The Simpsons, and we're actually re-watching it right now, so it's something that's on my mind. But, of course, Ned Flanders is really religious. He has absolute proof of God, and he has God's favor. And Mm -hmm. these kids, of course they believe in this, the man who, or he who walks behind the rose, because they have absolute proof he's real. And is good. Like, Bert talks about this when he's walking through it, how he's, like, never felt better in his mm-hmm. life just walking through the corn. He feels amazing. And he's, he feels happy. He's satisfied. He knows that the corn will take him where he needs to go. And the corn is perfect. There's not a single blight. There are no weeds. There's no bugs. It's absolutely perfect, and it makes them feel amazing. So, of course, these kids were like, hey, of course this God is real. Look at this. This is definitive proof. I can see God in front of me. I know he is real. Like, of course they started a corn religion. They have perfect corn. That makes them feel amazing. (laughs) And it has favored him. Like, he talks about how there's a part I highlighted where Bert is kind of looking through everything at the church and he goes but how could such a thing be kept a secret how could it go on how unless the God in question approved 
because he's wondering like how can this town exist here like what the state troopers never go through it people on holiday mm-hmm. never go through it like no one's called about their missing sister or anything like that and it's because god this god has favored the town and so nothing mm-hmm. bad is gonna happen to them and they will be able to keep going on because they have a god's favor <laughs> of course they believe in the god the god is real and is actively doing things in their life i get why they went into corn religion like i probably would have too <laughs> i'm like you're right he that's a real god he's certainly very very powerful i don't know if i would actually call this creature a god in the sense of like the Judeo christian god mm-hmm. he's an incredibly powerful being who certainly has yeah. otherworldly powers Indeed. and i can yeah, see not, why a bunch of children would worship him like a fey creature or yeah like a god in um in this in yeah in the in the sense that other cultures and non-judeo-christian based religions uh frequently talk about gods there's satan like a demon god there's a lot of lovecraft in this period of stephen king we see that also in jerusalem's thought which we'll get to but it could be that kind of like ancient god like pennywise is how Mm, is like that too where it's like this super entity that's not like God, but he is this incredibly powerful God-like entity that yes. can do almost anything. Like Pennywise and He Who Walks Behind the Rose, I think are very similar, if not mm. secretly the same. I wouldn't be shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, also, isn't there the implication that also it's Randall Flag from the stand? It could also be a Lovecraftian shown absolutely in the narrative to be wrong, to be an asshole, and to be the cause of everything bad that is happening to not just the woman he is married to, but everyone around him. And Bert is like that too, where he's an absolute dick. He should not be doing any of the things he's doing. He admits in the narrative, we see like clearly this guy was wrong, he shouldn't have done these things, he should have listened to his Mm. wife. And he has a lot of these characters where it's like, this man is out of control, and an idiot, and his wife is Steven, much, much smarter, and we should I, listen to I his reach wife. Into the, can I reach into the late 70s and give you a hug, like, retroactively? But also, Stephen, you're right, listen to Tabby. She's right. It's true. Listen to your beautiful wife. That was the so thing. Good. Is correct. She's just, you know, much like Vicky, she would be like, let's leave this creepy town. Yeah, let's leave this clearly horrible place. We don't need to stay here. I trust any woman with my life over any man. And I think Stephen King's narrative is telling me I should do that. I, you know, I think, I think that that's valid. 
the old, I think this is why I find men so exhausting, because I grew up reading a lot of Stephen King, and I know that a lot of men's decisions just end in me getting crucified and my mouth shoved full of corn. Full of corn silk, even. Ugh. Not even, like, the good, tasty... I know, I like, can't even get, like, a nice last meal. Yeah, I thought that just... corn is amazing, because it's perfect right? corn. I thought it tastes so good. You don't even forbidden get Forbidden corn. <laughs> Literal <laughs> forbidden corn. Let me know. I wonder if they're allowed to eat the corn. I don't know. Do they just, yeah, what do they... Probably. Maybe they get, like, one know. section. Like, Maybe. this is the human is... corn. Yeah. I suppose you are allowed. They're kids. They don't yes. eat a lot. It's fine. Um, it's fine. But that's what I meant when I said it's Stephen hashtag woke, is that all of his narratives seem to point towards this conclusion of, by and large, men, especially men who exhibit this toxic masculinity of screaming and like, yes, I'm the man, I'm going to do what we're doing, and you have to just listen mm-hmm. to me. All of those men are wrong, and it's dangerous to listen to them. You should listen to their way. You know? I don't know if he did it on purpose. But, but Steven, it's there. I hear you, and I'm gonna listen to Tabitha again. Alright. Shall we move on to vampires? I think we shall. Do we want to discuss these guys? We should probably discuss them separately, but we can also discuss them together. I think there will be a lot of overlap. Let's yeah. start chronologically. We'll start with Jerusalem Slot. Yes. Okay. Since that's the past, and then we have One for the Road, which is the future. So these both okay. bookmark Salem Slot, Jerusalem Slot takes place before the events of Salem's Lot. And for the, the road takes place late after. In, yes. Or this, no, no, in the mid-1800s. Yeah. Way, way before. Yeah. Way, way before. One for the road happens a couple years after Salem's yeah. Lot. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem's Lot takes place in, like, 17... No. No, 1850 is when the letters are addressed. Okay, I wrote down a date and circled it, so I thought that was appropriate, but I, I don't know what I wrote down 1789. There's, we'll find um, out. There is mention of 17. I think, like, one of his, his relative or whatever. Yeah, so I think that's... Was, okay. Reading this was entertaining, considering my fondness for... Uh, not... For how I wish the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot characters actually were, and how they do in fact appear in Star Trek Beyond. That's what you're I... No, because there's a character who's referred to as Bones. That's true. And I'm, I'm just saying, it's one of my bigger ships is Bones and Kirk, and sometimes Spock is there, too. And so reading this whole thing. And reading so many fics where he's always referred to as Bones, it's just like, you know, there it is. Yeah. Well. And I did picture Carl Urban as the I, Bones character in this as a result. I appreciate that. I pictured the Charles Boone character as very, like, an Oscar Wilde type. Ooh. So I did think they were. Also, like, I was gonna say, they fun. are in love. Okay, they are like confirmed bachelors. Well, Charles has a dead wife, but she's gone now. So, but that's what I'm saying. They're confirmed bachelors in the in the euphemistic sense of the word, not in terms of are they literally bachelors? 
Yeah, I'm just saying. Like how how five people existed back then, and Charles is guy. That's he true, loved his wife. He had a great that's time, true. and now she's gone. That's sad, but like you know, mm-hmm. he's been there his whole life, loving him and being there for him. Like I would read that. But Listen, anyway. I was no at the end of this. I was like, God, they're fucking. They're well, they're fucking, <laughs> but also they're fucking in love, aren't they? They're so in love. But what happens really in the short story? Sir Charles. Yes. Bean, anyway, our good friend. The point is, and his childhood friend Bones, who's also like his manservant type guy. God, um, the Charles thing writes is... itself. It writes. I know. I know. Itself. Anyway. You're right. You're right. Um, you know, if you're a Patreon, you can request us to write fanfic about Charles Moon and Bones, and only Indeed. about those two. No, only no other ships, them. sorry. Yes. I reserve the right to completely change my mind about that. I really can. Wait, no, so it's, so it's, it's, no, it's, um, hold on. So it goes back and forth between, so Bones is... It's it's Richard Boone and Charles something else, right? What no, do you call it? I got I got confused. It's Charles Boone who's writing all the letters. He's okay. the guy in eighteen fifty who's there and his friend Bones. But he's writing. No, so no, the sorry. Letters begin, dear Bones, and then are signed Charles. You're and right. Then oh my God, we've been so. There's dear Richard and signed Charles. Unless he goes back and forth between calling him Richard and calling him Bones. And always signing it, Charles. Yeah. So there's Bones who he could be in love with, but also I think he is in love with his manservant, whose name is Calvin. And I was in okay, there, there we go. The yes. Yes. They were just, who also has been his childhood friend. Like, they have all been friends for years for and years and years. And. All right, fucking Jerusalem. He does write multiple people. Fanfic. Like, he doesn't he does. just write them. So the Richard might be something else. I don't know. The important thing is he's in love with Bones. He starts out his first letter with, like, I'm glad you're feeling better, but man, it sucks that you have to be in Florida. Right? Which is and relatable. Like, Jesus Christ. No one wants to be in Florida. Um, mm-hmm. Also, they're not into slavery, which is nice. I'm glad which Stephen nice. King cleared that up for us right away. Yeah. That these characters that are whole... anti-slavery. That's nice. That's good to know, given the time period. This is uh... not to say they are not problematic. It's nice to know they got rid of, like, any questions about that right away. So mm-hmm. Charles Boone is writing his friend Bones and he's telling him that he and Calvin, his faithful manservant, they are deep in love, uh, just arrived at Chapel Wait, which is where his late cousin lived. His late cousin mm-hmm. whom he didn't speak to because they have a long standing family rift. And his cousin left him his house after he died as a way of mending the rift, so Charles thinks. So yes. Charles, of course, Charles goes there. He's like, great. Sounds good. Love this house. And everyone in the nearby town thinks the house is super haunted and mm-hmm. freaky. And Charles just thinks there's rats. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to spoil something for you guys. It's not just rats. And yes. anyway, Calvin finds a secret map of the nearby village. Also, he calls village. him Cal. He abbreviates his name as Cal. Like, oh, it's cute. And Calvin no, writes I... his little diary about them. It's cute. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's cute, okay. But they find a map for a deserted village nearby called Jerusalem's Lot. It's not familiar. It's because it's Salem's Lot. You guys get it. Anyway. And they're like, great, let's go. And it's completely abandoned. No one's been there. Like, not even teenagers 
to vandalize it have been there. Nothing is going on there. And they find a church that has some horrible, blasphemous, religious imagery. Um, we don't get to specifically hear. Yeah, so there's that. Like, and there's a portrait of the Madonna and child that is in some way horribly, horribly wrong. But he does mm-hmm. not tell us explicitly because it's 1850 and he wouldn't write that down. That's true. He was just like, it was horrible and really great. Um, they also find a book called The Mysteries of the Worm. Oh, yeah. Just the buddies. Like, I knew the entire time this was a very serious short story, but the idea that it's just about a worm. Like, sorry, Lovecraft, that's not scary. It's not. Sorry. Despite what our long-ago classmate who requested a worm trigger warning <laughs> may feel. The Mysteries of the Worm is not. No. It's not scary. But they touch the worm book and the whole place wiggles. W-Y-R-M, but that's a very different matter. Yeah, then it's written old-timey and it's spooky. Well, but worms are actually like a... They're like a form of fantastical beast. Like, sorry. They still look like a worm, but they're not scary. Worms are... um, No, it's like like a form of... um, a dragon. Mm, maybe. A W-Y-R-M is... No, I'm not making this up. That's what it actually is. No, I mean, I believe you, but I'm just saying I don't think it's scary. No, I'd okay. be like, what's your name? Oh. Um, I just don't find it very intimidating. But they touch the no, book and true. the whole place wiggles, and they're like, let's leave. So they leave, and Sorry, they I find out that... Sorry, I just in the Red Hot Chili Peppers give it away, where Anthony Kita says, you deserved a wiggly squirm. I writhe and squirm. They find out that everyone in town hates them and is scared of them because his family line is cursed. And he asks the old cleaning lady what's up, and she tells him that his his grandfather's brother, so mm-hmm. his granduncle, Right? I needed to Grandfather's make like, a genealogical chart to understand all of the relationships in the story, but it's I didn't, lot. so I don't. Yeah, so his grandfather's brother got super into the worm cult. There was a worm cult in Jerusalem's lot, and his grandfather's brother, Philip, got super duper into it and asked his Charles' grandfather to find him a copy of a book called The Mystery of the Worm. And the guy's like, okay, like, I'll write some people, let's find out. And they're like, the bookseller's like, here it is, please never contact me again. And he's like, oh, that's weird, okay, well, my brother said that I, he would stop doing this cult stuff if I just got on this book, so I'll give him this book. And then his brother's like, obviously I'm not going to stop with the cult stuff, give me everything mm-hmm. I need for the cult stuff, I'm going to keep on with the cult stuff. Yeah. And he's like, well, I'm going to try to destroy the book. Which is actually what caused his, like, deep-seated family riff mm-hmm. in the Boom fam. One of them was into worm cult, one of them was not. Family riff. So, Charles is from the side of the family that wasn't into the worm cult. His cousin who left in the house was from the side that was into the worm cult. And in... It's a lot. So, they get the worm book, and then in 19... 19- in 1789, that was the date I worked on. There you go. Everyone in Jerusalem disappeared. Just everyone's gone. No one knows what happens. Obviously, like, there's a descendant who escaped or, like, left the lot before everyone disappeared. He was just out of town that week. And that's where 
the family line kind of continued down. Mm-hmm. And there's also a couple bastards here and there. Yeah. Anyway, it's important because the Boone family is cursed, so it's important we remember that there are Boones just around. That are just you know, scattered they're, abouts. They're around. One scattered about and created Charles' cousin. One scattered about and created Charles. And also he had a bastard, which we don't find out about until the end. But surprise, there's a bastard. Um, they decide to go How look for rats in the basement. Yeah. That was just life at the time. It's true. Have a couple extra in the back pocket just in case something happens to your kids. You know. It's fine. Uh, they decide to look for rats in the basement because they think that's smart. They've been hearing them walls. Yeah, they're like, hmm, this creepy journal that talks about horrible things and these horrible s- movement and laughter we're hearing from the walls. It sounds like we should go to the basement. So they go to the basement and Well, there's no woman find... in the story. Well, there's no romantic interest woman in the story to be like, don't do that, you dumb shit. Exactly. So of course they do it and there's no framing of like, perhaps not. No one's there to tell them not to, except for the old lady who's uh, their cleaning That's lady. That's true. Who is like, you should do right now. I had a thing about her where she, she's talking about, oh yeah. Your grandfather Robert and his brother Philip fell out over stolen, and here she paused almost guiltily, items in 17 and 89. And I guess that's the book? Yeah, he tries to steal it. But at the time, I was like, slaves? Given the time period and the fact that they mentioned it in the beginning, and she doesn't want to talk about what it is? But no, it turns out it's the book. Yeah. But that was my first thought. Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, they find vampires so the in the basement. It's not great. And they lock them back in the basement, and Charles sleeps for, like, three days. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he's a dandy, and he's sensitive. And he's he faints. Sensitive. He probably has a fainting couch. Probably. Um, that Cal fetched for him. Yeah, and then Calvin's, and like, then, like, you know, decoding the secrets of the town. He's actually, like, doing work and really. stuff. He's, that's where we find out all the, like word stuff with the brothers mm-hmm. and Charles decides that he needs to go back to the town through some slot oh yeah because he's see what just the fuck is up. bonkers so he goes Calvin goes with him because he is a steadfast friend and it's very very heart-wrenching and emotional they're with each other to the end of the line it's so Charles stucky, goes back to the town becomes possessed <laughs> Listen, it's right there. It um, really is. It's it really goes all the way to the top. Ah. So also, he goes okay, to the town. He comes to Gust. He summons the worm. And then he's like, I don't get through the summer. I know. I know. Keep going. Keep That's going. not true. I'm not going to pee my pants. Please don't think I'm going to pee my pants. I don't, I'm not going to pee my pants. That sounds exactly like what somebody who's going to pee your pants would say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he becomes possessed. Summons the worm. Mm-hmm. Calvin smacks him out of it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh shit, I summoned the worm. Oh no. So they set fire to the book. But then Calvin dies. And it's very, mm. very, very sad. Charles very sad. leaves the town after the book mm-hmm. is, is burned. And decides to kill himself so his cursed family line will die. Mm-hmm. He knows that the worm is not actually defeated because there are other copies of the book out there. He knows mm-hmm. he just like did what he could for this particular book and that he's gonna kill himself but lo and behold the bastard i mentioned shows up and is like wow isn't it crazy how my cousin was so fucking insane and all Mm -hmm. of this was fake 
and not real at all. Anyway, I'm going to live in this house now. I better get like... some rat poison. Yeah, because there's a lot of rats in the walls. Womp, womp, womp. Womp, womp. Yeah, this is a Stephen King yes. story with a Lovecraftian beast. Oh my god. Also, I just, it is nearly dusk and I have just wakened, having slept nearly the last 24 hours away. Although Cal has said nothing, I suspect he put a sleeping powder in my tea, having gleaned my intentions. He is a good and faithful friend, intending only the best, and I shall say nothing. Ugh. He's very nice. He's very nice. From the pocket journal of Calvin McCann. He is impersuadable. Very well. I go with him. Anyway, this is a Lovecraftian monster. They mention a lot of, like, specific Lovecraftian Yeah, and it, like, monsters uh, in it. Yasugoth and... Yeah. When he becomes possessed, he is spouting off lots of Lovecraftian monster Shit. names. Yes. He is the worm from beyond space. Mm-hmm. It's not great. Um, no, it is not. I like the inevitability in this, where this is a cursed family line. Of course, the family will find its way back to this house. Of course, the family will mm-hmm. find a way back to the lot. It's going to happen no matter what. If you try to kill the family line, of course, there will be a bastard off somewhere. That's true. Sneaking away. Of course, you will go back. You will That's read the book. There's nothing else you could do. But that was really mm-hmm. neat, although not very happy. One might say depressing and fatalistic. There's a lot of that. (laughs) One might. In Stephen's work. One might. Would you? Are you that Mm. one? I think so. I also like the resurgence of this house is bad. House is bad. It's always been bad. The house is bad. It's a bad house. Bad Bad wood, bad foundation, bad house. Like the idea that a a house has any moral implication at all. Just the house itself is evil because of the evil stuff going around it. Evil soaked up into the floorboards. They have to mm-hmm. evil. Like the haunted mansion guy. Just a bad house. The hotel is a bad hotel. That house is a bad house. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever actually read any Lovecraft. But I am familiar enough with the basic ideas of the mythos mm-hmm. that hearing whatever whatever the speech is called the 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 actual like Lovecraftian eldritch abomination words does not hold any horror for me. It feels very kitschy and not very scary. And I think that part of that I can also attribute to uh, Lindsay Ellis, Antonella and Sarah, and Eliza Hansen's Awoken, which was their attempt to write a teen paranormal romance novel using Cthulhu as the supernatural monster being uh, the Edward Cullen uh, figure. And I think that because of that, like, I just inherently no longer really find, because I, I didn't start out reading Lovecraft and finding those things scary and connecting with it, and so my connection to Lovecraft is like, he wrote some eldritch abomination stuff, he's an abhorrent racist, and sexy high school Cthulhu who fucks. Also, before everyone's like, how do you call Lovecraft? I'm gonna go ahead and Google what his cat's name is. Yeah, Google what his cat's name is. Go fuck yourself. Okay, anyway. 
yeah, his his work is all very. And if you're like, lazy, if you're too lazy to Google it, I'll tell you, it is N word man. And not like the N word like we know it now, not like in the past. They would refer to people as like Negroes, and we're like, that's bad, but like that was the past, so it's fine. You wouldn't call anybody that now, but it's not a slur in a sense that yeah, the yeah, other like one is. The slurriest, the slurriest N-word. Yeah. Because my, my partner, Mike, thought it might be the better one. He wanted to believe it was the it's slightly not. better one. It's not. It's, it's not. not. It's the worst one possible. That's what we need is cat. Anyway. Um, it's all very, like, the universe is vast and doesn't care about you and you're cosmically insignificant and you just see mm-hmm. horrors and there's just nothing you can do about that. Which is just kind of like how I live my daily life, so I've never mm-hmm. really been scared of any of that works. And so yeah, this is the universe is completely something... different to me. Good. I can just die randomly. Good. So I know <laughs> we talked about, in the Salem's Lot episode, we mentioned H-Bomber Guy and how he talks about Dracula, and he talks about Dracula even though, like, the Marxist reading doesn't really follow because uh, Marx was talking about vampires in general and H. Bomber guy applies it to Dracula specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but the video from which that comes is a video about H.P. Lovecraft and about mm-hmm. how to adapt H.P. Lovecraft in the 21st century. And yeah. something that he talks about that I really connect with is he notices... So it's in that video that he comes out and says that he himself is bi and had a lot of like issues with that. And so he was wondering why so many people who Lovecraft would probably hate because he is anti-Semitic, he is homophobic, he is racist, all of those things. But a lot of queer people, a lot of people of color, a lot of queer people of color, or I don't know about a lot, but there are um, a lot of fans of Lovecraft who the man himself would probably despise. So I would really recommend that that might be my recommendation for this episode actually is that video essay because he talks about what of value we can take from Lovecraft. I think that that's worth checking out because it's a really good exploration of the power of horror and how you can find things of value in work by people who suck really bad and and how and and it's a good insight into how one can kind of grapple with those things um, i also absolutely understand why... if you don't connect to lovecraft because a lot of times you don't necessarily like you feel those things in your daily life and you don't feel the need to explore it in fiction especially when you know that the horrible incomprehensible creature that he's talking about is like a jewish person I think it depends on when you read it. If I had read Lovecraft as a like a younger person, I probably really would have picked up on that. But because I did as an adult after I already came to terms and had read several other things about these feelings of alienation and like the hatred that surrounds me every day, mm-hmm. I just found Lovecraft kind of saucy. Anytime a straight white man stumbles onto a valid emotion that he's exploring, that same thing has been explored better by a person of color or a member of minority group mm-hmm. in a way that is much more, it resonates better and also it is more well explored because they have this context of the world around them. Mm-hmm. So why would you read something by like this asshole mm-hmm. white guy? He 
has these feelings, but his feelings are because he thinks he's smarter than everyone else around him, and his feelings are because, I don't know, he had like a huge superiority complex. He really did. So when you know that, a... it's like, why would you look for that in him when you have so many other people who have these feelings that are wonderful people? But if you don't read those things and you only read Lovecraft, of course you wouldn't connect with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying yeah. there are better works about alienation and the indifference of the world around you. Absolutely. And this is, the, this is the thing that is simultaneously kind of cool and frustrating is that I, well, I don't know. I, I cannot back up this statement. I was, going to, I was going to say something and then I realized that I don't really know this for sure, but um, I think that Lovecraft is the generator of a lot of these tropes, and, or at least is one of the more prolific people who examined them fairly like, early on. Um, and so I think that it's in the same way that like we talk this is the example that I always go to but it's a really good example so I always go to it um, when we talk about why Citizen Kane is such a landmark film it's not necessarily that it did all of these or even like why the iPhone was a groundbreaking piece of technology it's not that it was doing anything new per se but it combined everything together um, and sort of coalesced it into a way that has now become a foundational example of how to use all of these things. And I think that Lovecraft has some of that in terms of grappling with that like existential horror and dread, whatever. I think that, um, and perhaps I'm wrong to, to think this, but it seems in terms of the chronology and examples that Lovecraft is uh, laid like a bit of a foundation. And since then, since, um, people, marginalized people, have taken more of a prominent position for themselves and are the ones who are, and, and their voices are now being heard, we can see the more interesting ways to grapple with these things and, and more valuable um, and insightful expressions of alienation and of, of um, being a pawn in an incomprehensible system and all of that stuff. Yeah, I agree. And it was very well-crafted. He was the first like major author who really did that and explored it in this like new, interesting, fun way, which was yeah. horror. And that's why mm. I think I find it so strange every time I read Stephen doing Lovecraftian mm. things because a lot of the horror market at the time Stephen came on the scene, we talked about this before, was very Lovecraftian still. Like mm. that was yeah. still the mainstream horror experience. And then Stephen mm. King came on the scene and completely changed it. He changed it into horror is everyday, horror is next door. That's not about cosmic beings that are from space it's about like the guy next door to you who's a real fucking dick and is beating his wife like that's and, yeah, what horror and, is in Stephen King mm -hmm. so when he like kind of goes back into the slow crafting style it feels mm -hmm. very weird to me because it's mm -hmm. not it's not what he does and I think it's interesting that this is the one that is far in the past for Sailor's Lot and then one for the Road, which is the one that's after Salem Slot, is in Stephen King's traditional style. So it's like, yeah. this is the past of horror. This is where it was. I'm going to show you also where it's going, and it's going to a traditional Stephen King narrative of yeah. just some guys. Some guys in a bar. Mm -hmm. Just and hanging out. That's something that will become, um, we're probably gonna, we're probably gonna get into this with The Stand, and we'll definitely get into it with It, because Pennywise is a very Lovecraftian sort of figure. I think It mitigates that early Lovecraft horror and Stephen King's horror. The horror is what's next door to you, because Pennywise 
embodies the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, mm-hmm. the sexual violence, abuse, uh, all of those things. And so you have the eldritch creature that carries all of these things through into the present in yeah. more And I think that's ways. purposeful because that is what we are more scared of. Whereas oh, absolutely. in like the 1700s, Penelope probably could just pull some like weird eldritch shit and then be like, ah! And, like, that would work for him because he feeds on the fear, so he had to adapt over time Mm -hmm. and just become this, a different thing and different methods of scaring people because Mm -hmm. he knows that the Eldritch Horror isn't going to speak children as much because they have movies or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And he's adapted in the same way that the horror genre as a whole is adapted. And I love Stephen for doing that for us. Yeah, I do too, yeah. I just think this one thing is hilarious and not scary. I'm just so glad we're past this. It's a giant worm. Just get a a really big boot. But it's a spooky worm. Just get a big boot. Squish the worm. Oh my goodness. Very squishy thing. And then we have all these fond childhood memories. There's the worm that said Spongebob. There's a lot of worminess in uh, Goosebumps. Yeah, worms are just like, they're not scary anymore. I'm sorry, guys. I am so sorry, HP Lovecraft. I'm your not. worm is hilarious, and I would just kill I'm it. not sorry. I'm, just... I'm not sorry that your worm is hilarious, HP. What's a worm to a gun? Just shoot the worm. It's a big a worm. worm. You can definitely gun? shoot it. Yeah. What's a man to a worm? What's a worm to a gun? What's a... We need to finish this this song. We, we don't, actually, but I want to. <laughs> I mean, it's a gun to a non-believer. It's still a gun, dude. It still works. Yeah, exactly. Just fucking shoot the one. Just fucking shoot the one. There we go. Charles, the listen, I know you had guns in 1850. I know they probably weighed, like, 50 pounds, but get right. your man servant to carry it for you. Listen, Cal will do anything for you. He Just start you. shooting wildly into the ground of the church, okay? It's fine. Fine. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. I'll kill the worm. I can solve this. Oh my goodness. Moving away from worms. One for the road. There's this group of men hanging out in a bar in... What town does it say? Cumberland? Falmouth. No. Or they're outside of Falmouth. Falmouth, Falmouth, yeah. Yeah, a Uh, smaller town near really weirded me out because there's a Falmouth in Massachusetts and... Mm -hmm. Uh, I had relatives who lived there for a while, and so knowing that this is Falmouth, Maine, I was like, what? Uh, yeah. Oh, 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 okay. I'm sure there was some family of the Falmouths who did, like, oh, everything sure. in New England. Yes. Probably. So they're in Falmouth, they're sitting in a bar, a few different people, and this man who's, like, shivering and partly frostbitten comes in and bursts in and says that he looks absolutely terrified, and he says, my wife, my daughter, and he collapses. And it turns out that he and his wife and his daughter were driving through this absolutely monstrous blizzard, mm-hmm. and again, the man was a dumb shit and turned off the highway to, like, through town, because that's what his directions said to do, even though it's, like, a ludicrous storm that he shouldn't even be driving through in the first place but if even though he is driving through he certainly should only stay on the highway but anyway he's from new jersey so he's so he doesn't know things yes so he turns off the highway he was driving through town his car stalled out 
and uh, he left his wife and his daughter in the car, which was like six miles away, and he walked to try and get help. And then he reveals that the place where he stopped is, yeah, six miles south is in Salem's Lot, or where <laughs> Salem's Lot used to be. So they go, they mount an expedition to get back to the car, um, and on the way, this man is like, you know something, what is, what is wrong? What is weird about the lot? What are we going to find? And they say, listen, like, we can't really tell you, but um, if your wife and daughter aren't in the car, we're going to fucking leave. We are not looking for them. Like, mm -hmm. if they're not in the car, that's it. We're done. So they go back and they look, and they're not in the car. They go over there, um, they, uh... The guy, like, starts walking away. He's, like, I'm, yeah. he's screaming for his wife and child. They're, like, no, really, get back in the car. There are vampires around here. And he's, like, you're fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. And then he sees his wife. Mm -hmm. She looks great. She's hot. Yes. They notice. She's hot. as we know, uh, from Salem's Lot, when you turn into a vampire, if you're... If you're young, question mark, you become really, really hot looking. I think you look better when you're old too, but like you have to, it only makes you like, oh, let's say 30% hotter. Oh, so okay. it depends so on you where to, you like, start out with, I think. Yeah. So that's why the, the youth. But they look very healthy, like rosy cheeked, mm -hmm. blood pumping, like everyone Despite looks healthy. They just might also no, be old. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Who's to say? Um, he goes to his wife and she bites him and turns him into a vampire and Toki and Booth are like let's fucking leave yeah Toki starts having a heart attack which is relatable so he's trying he's and getting in the car and course with Salem's Lot vampires yeah I mean that's spooky and they're not young chickens these they these mainers they're, they're, they're tough old main guys and so he's getting in the car Booth's going around to the other side to get into the car and he sees mm -hmm. this child that is also a vampire, and she's like begging him for a kiss, and he's like about to do it, and then Tuki throws the Bible at her. Oh, that's inside right. the car, he takes his mom's Bible, who carries with him, and throws it at this child, and she like hisses Which, and like, like runs away. Like I understand that it is an important dramatic thing, but just the image of a man like whipping around and beating a child in the head with a bike. And it, like, smokes when it touches her. I pray to God this gets adapted, because that's such a funny moment. I, I It's like it. in the second John Wick when his gun runs out of bullets, and so he just throws it at a man's head. It's so, it's so funny. This bitch and empty. Then, yeet. is like, oh shit. So he, like, picks up the Bible, gets mm -hmm. in the car, and they yeet out of there. They're like, those they tourists do. are gone forever. And then, like, a couple of years later, Tiki dies of, like, normal stuff, and Booth is scared mm -hmm. of vampires, and he's like, if you're ever driving on the road in Maine, see a little girl. Don't fucking don't, stop. Just keep going, which is, like, good advice. Don't stop yeah. while driving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know who stopped while driving and it didn't end well? Uh, Bert and Vicky, so. Yeah. Here's another, another nugget of Listen Stephen advice. Uh, if you're driving somewhere and you need to stop, don't stop in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, if you're in the middle of fucking nowhere and you don't know what's stop. around you at all, like if you're in the middle of nowhere but you live in the middle of nowhere, like you know where like you are, fine. Mm -hmm. 
otherwise just wait until you see like the next mcdonald's or something yeah like just don't... just wait sometimes just capitalism wait. is good and that's when it saves you from vampires or amish corn worshippers those are the only times capitalism is good though the only that's times. it that's it but yeah i think that this short story so this was originally published in 1977, which is after Salem's Lot is published. Jerusalem's mm-hmm. Lot was unpublished before this. He wrote mm-hmm. this and then published it in here. But they've already published this one. I think that makes the ending of Salem's Lot kind of a super bummer. Like, yes, yeah, the town is does. burned down, and oh, it yeah, helps a little about... bit, but there are still vampires everywhere. Yeah. Like... I was thinking about how much different it would be if they didn't burn down the town. How would this be different if it was a town full of vampires instead of, like, some stragglers picking off travelers? Because in, in Salem's Lot, in the beginning chapters, um, when before we know, like, who Ben and Mark are, when they're sort of, like, the boy and the man, and they're still, like, cooling it around, like, the Mexico border, he keeps on, like, looking for main newspapers and looking at reports, and I forget what ends up being the deciding factor in their returning to Salem's Lot to burn that fucker? Is it that they the time is just right, or is it that the disappearances are getting worse? Or Mark what gets is it? I don't know. Taken into the church and confesses. Yes. And yes, the priestess like yikes. And they're having nightmares. Okay. And they just kinda of realize like it cannot go on like this. Okay. Um because there aren't that many disappearances. They know that mm-hmm. they're still happy. Like, they know it's yes. not going to just stop on its own. That is yeah. probably part of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In this short story, they talk about how... I Another one where they're just like, the lot went bad. That's a bad town now. It was empty. Some people moved in. And they didn't last. A lot of them moved. Or they just, mm-hmm. you know, disappeared. Then the town burned flat. And, um... For a time, things were better, and then they started again. So it didn't really, like, impact it. I think primarily it is still people from out of town who have been attacked because everyone in the area wear, like, rosaries, crucifixes, or St. Christopher medals. They carry yeah, they religious have, artifacts with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. They, they all know that about they can it. They throw at children's faces. Exactly. They, they have one of those t shirt guns. Yeah. Which is Bibles in it. launch pocket and, Bibles. Uh, so the locals are pretty safe from it because they know what to expect. Mm-hmm. I think it is still out-of-towners that are... I mean, you know how many it is in the summer. Even if you're oh, not yes. going to a town, everyone's like, let's take the scenic route. Yep. Why don't we go yeah, on the highway? Let's another, just drive through this point town. Another point for hashtag WokeSteven because the man is like, let's turn off of the highway in this blizzard. Here's the safest way to drive in a snowstorm. Mm-hmm. Don't. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the do second not. safest way to drive in a snowstorm: have a stick shift car and stay on huge main roads. Yes. But the safest way to do it is just, just, just don't, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you absolutely must, I would call either your local municipality government or your local police station, and they will typically, they'll first tell you not to do it, but also then they will be able to tell you which roads are the safest at the current moment. You Mm -hmm. should follow their advice, because they will have insight into what's actually being plowed. The problem with this people is they were like, well, we thought we were going to a town, so it would be plowed. They didn't know that the town is actually, like, completely gone, 
If it's a small town, they probably wouldn't plow the major roads because why would they? Why waste the energy? It has a nice little like um, out of towners are bad, Maine is good yeah. vibe to it. It's like oh, it he's from Jersey. Very, no fucking wonder. I mean, I'm from Connecticut. I can appreciate roasting New Jersey as well as anyone. Sorry, New Jersey. Also, not. I was oh, I was gonna say. I remember it's a very around the fire, and I'm gonna tell you a ghost story. Yeah. Um, and it has a moral to it, which is don't trust out-of-towners, listen to what people say. One of the people in my MFA cohort is making a film that is a Lovecraftian ghost story, and it's set quite firmly in, it's like a cabin in a lake at nighttime. And so there's a very similar sort of atmosphere, and the framing mm-hmm. device for that story is a grandma tells her grandchildren to gather around the fire and she'll tell them a tale. And so that's a very New England thing, and that's a very Lovecraft thing, and also because Lovecraft is a very New England-based like yeah. writer. Um, and so it's interesting, again, what we were talking about before, with this is Stephen King's version of horror versus the Lovecraftian horror which he is instrumental in providing a shift from and it still has an element of I'll tell you a spooky tale yeah I think that's interesting this one because the last like full paragraph in this short story before mm. they're like there's a little girl out there and she's waiting for a kiss. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But before that, it talks about how, like, yeah, you can come to this side of the country, have a drink, you know, and then keep moving. You keep moving. It's this idea of you don't belong here. You don't know what horrors are waiting here. Like, do not try to enter places you don't belong because you will get eaten by vampires you'll be okay as long as you belong here. Like, the townspeople, yes. generally speaking, unless they're, like, the mm-hmm. truck driver who's like, I don't believe in vampires, <laughs> they're okay. Mm-hmm. Because they believe, and they understand the rituals of the place they live, and they follow them. It's a fairy tale in that way, in the sense of, not in the sense of Disney fairy tales, but in the sense of more, like, traditional, especially um, Celtic, fairy tales like Scottish Irish whatever mm-hmm. if you if you follow these rules if you listen to the people who live here like they know what's up they know the ways of the land and the creatures that live there and you need mm-hmm. to follow those rules and respect those rules to be safe yeah and they will try and to help is, you like, they try exactly. to get that guy safe he mm-hmm. does not listen to them and he gets invited yeah, and also, I I like this, I like thinking about this tale in that way, because I really fucking love those fairy tales. S- stories of fairy rings, and going under the fairy hill, mm-hmm. and the, the fae as creatures who are, creatures who exist in a realm that is not our own, and who are bound to different rules, and have a totally different sense of what is right and what is wrong with changes that would only take out the anachronicity like the anachronisms um this could be one of the stories that appears in jonathan strange and mr norrell um yeah absolutely and i and i really like that i really like that those kinds of stories and i really love the like the fae like the fae fae mm-hmm. well and fairy tales much like all vampire stories are also about transgression and sin. Mm. And when you think yeah. about this one, it's like, okay, Salem's Lot, we had some 
really awful people who are sinning mm-hmm. and transgressing all the time. What? So they can get fires. Great. Fine. And then it's kind of, what is this guy from New Jersey? What has he done? And his is a literal transgression. And yeah, he, he literally like, went where he wasn't supposed to go. Yeah. He entered a land he did not belong in, and he did so without thinking about it. He was careless. He didn't listen to the locals. He had every opportunity to do it kindly and respectfully be in the area, and he instead chose mm-hmm. to just kind of bullhead his way through. And that's what that's what his sin was. His sin was a literal... Mm-hmm. He trespassed. Which he is disrespected so... the area, and he trespassed, and that was his I'm sin. kind of this... Framing, framing this story this way is making me fall in love with it a lot more and is also making me, because again, like I do so love those stories. And it's really cool to see a story that is elements of modern Stephen King horror, whatever, but it's also one that is a, a tale as old as time. It is very old horror and mm-hmm. old folk tale. The prose style, the elements of who everybody is, whatever, is is modern, but the the core of the story is very much not. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's so, it's just so goddamn relatable. Yeah. Because I, like you, so I've been on vacation in Maine mm-hmm. a couple of times, and mm-hmm. you know, like, you're sitting there in, like, a lovely place to eat. And the family next to you, there's these, like, assholes from, like, Wesley or some bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. And they're just being yeah. horrible to all the local uh-huh. people. And you just mm-hmm. wish they would get eaten by vampires. You really kind of do. It could happen. It could happen. And that's going to make me feel better when I go back to me. It's knowing that all the real pieces of shit around me. I think I'm going to vampires. There you go. Probably not. But maybe. It's me. You really never know what's going on in the time. That's true. You really never know. Do we want to? Uh, we didn't. I didn't. We didn't really play bingo for this one because it was like a series no, I of don't stories. Think... I don't know. It didn't feel right. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. There's no true and no individual story that have given us bingo, mm. and it didn't feel quite right to do a bingo for a short story collection. That felt a little yeah. too easy. We definitely could have gotten bingo, but we could have. We like a challenge. We do. We do. You know. We us. ask for more. Um, that's us. Yeah. So should you read? I think that you should read. I think you should read all these stories. Um, I think you can, honestly, you could give Quitters Inc. a miss. Um, you know, gotta. It's fine. Like, whatever. Um, I think it's the weakest out of all of these. Um, yeah. It's like a nice, short one-off like this is fine yeah and it's very fast that's the nice thing about the short stories is they're so low risk yeah even if you hate it you're only spending a short amount of time reading it so you can go mm-hmm. ahead and do it yeah um, and i would say like i said i've read some other ones in this collection we've both read the lawnmower man which is fucking balls really, to the wall bonkers really good you guys should read it showing the corn of course is a classic Yes, and it is. Um, a very famous movie. Also, Night mm. Surf is in this collection, which is the short story that mm. becomes The Stand, whereas the basis for The Stand. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Which I think we would have read that, but... We would have, whatever. We can go back. This is, this is our show. You're right. A Patreon mini-sode. Um, 
what else? Yeah, I've I've also read The Man Who Loved Flowers, uh, Strawberry Spring, The Boogeyman, um, a couple other ones. This is a very solid collection with a lot of good things going on in it. So I would say definitely read these stories on the lawnmower man and then like give the other ones a try yeah it also has a very classic Stephen King forward in it where it's like mm. let's talk about food and like ooh yeah. spooky ghost story time Stephen like that fire uh so honestly it's definitely worth all this for the forward yeah I like a good Stephen Sweet. King forward I do too I enjoy mm. when he's just writing about him which is probably why he wrote a whole book about, about his writing process. So. What are our recommendations, if any? I also, I would recommend the 1984 Children's Corn movie if you mm-hmm. want to watch it. It is a classic. It's very good. It is different than the short story. So if you somehow haven't seen it, we didn't completely spoil it for you. Mm-hmm. But also, it's kind of fun to see. Also, I think this is a short story that has really the... strong visuals. So it's good to see those visuals, mm. like, out there. Like, to see the town, mm-hmm. very eerie. Yes, I would recommend, I would sincerely recommend the H-Bomber Guy's um, H.P. Lovecraft video essay. I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of value in it, and it says interesting stuff about horror and about how we reconcile authors with their works and also how horror works and kind of translating mm-hmm. themes across time and whatever. And he also posits The Shape of Water is very Lovecraftian, but better. And uh, I agree with his analysis, so there you go. And in terms of, like, reading anything, this is on my mind because of how, because of our conversation talking about One for the Road as, like, a very old world, like, fairy tale. I would recommend, actually, an AYA novel that I absolutely love. It's the first of a trilogy of stories by Holly Black, and it is uh, called Tithe. And it is about a girl who discovers that she is a changeling, and it has a lot of, like, politics of unseely and seely courts. And a lot of classic mm-hmm. fairy tale stuff where, like, fairies are magical and they have these powers, but they also are capricious and do not follow our laws and, like, should not be trusted. And a lot of classic, like, if you eat the thing in fairy, shit will happen to you stuff. And I really loved it and it made a big impact on me as a youth. That about does it for Listen, Steven, Steven, Listen this week. Yeah, join us next time. We'll be doing part one of The Stand. The Stand is into in three parts on its own. Yes. We'll be doing a three-parter on The Stand. So it's mm-hmm. a very, very long book. Yes. Join us for part one next time. Thank you to Lena Orsa for our intro and outro music. Uh, you can follow the show at listen underscore Steven on Twitter. Uh, you can email us at listenstevenpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can support the show at our Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash listensteven. You can follow me, Margo, on Twitter at whattofoxtrot, W-H-A-T-T-E-H-F-O-X-T-R-O-T. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. We are now on Apple Podcasts, and it is invaluable to get more people to come to the show. Anything else to miss? Hit subscribe if you don't want to miss out on anything. Oh, yeah. Do that. We'll see you in two weeks. Stay spooky.